This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show, the Monday edition of The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, uh, questions about stuff that's going on in your life. All we need you to do is provide the call us part. You can dial 210-340-9585 or If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email your questions to us by emailing questions at calvaryessay.com or you can use our Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. Remember, if you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Uh, just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Hope you had a great day in church yesterday. Palm Sunday um, is, is uh, I, I say this a lot, but it's one of my favorite days. Uh, I just love the story. I, this week, Jesus' Passion Week, um, is an amazing thing. I'm going to spend some time this week, uh, each of the days on the top of the radio program, kind of going over a couple of things that Jesus was dealing with uh, on this particular day, on his march to the cross. A couple of things before we move tonight, uh, before we go forward. Paula will be teaching the ladies tonight uh, at 7 o'clock on our women's Bible study. Pastor Ken will be teaching the men. And, of course, we've got our uh, youth pastors also teaching uh, the youth uh, so you can make it a family event. That's at 7 o'clock tonight. And, ladies, you can watch at calvarysa.com. You can watch the live stream. Um, We are having some special services this week. On Friday night, we'll be having a Good Friday service. Uh, It's always a very special time here. You know, there's almost nothing that you're doing that's new, but we've for many, many years been doing on our Good Friday night service, um, giving the people the opportunity to come up and nail to a big wooden cross that somebody made for us many, many years ago. Um, as people are walking into the sanctuary, worship is going on, and there's a line of people waiting to nail uh, these things that they're dealing with, that the Lord is dealing with them on, um, to the cross. And um, um, as you're coming into worship, it's sort of a, a, a little bit more solemn than we usually are here at Calvary Chapel. So as the worship is going on in the background, you've got the sound of the nailing going on to the cross. It is a, it's a staggering moment. And so that will be Friday night at 7 o'clock. And then on Easter Sunday, we'll be having three services. We're expanding the times, so we're going to be at 8 o'clock. 10 o'clock and 12 o'clock. Normally we have two services on Easter, but we can rent a bigger place. And with the COVID situation, nobody's renting bigger places. So we're going to have three services here, 8 o'clock, 10 o'clock and 12 o'clock. And that um, uh, cross will still be there with all of those things that we nailed to it. And then uh, I tie in how the empty tomb takes care of all of those things that we wrote. So it's going to be a really, really good time. Okay, before I start with some questions, let's talk about just a couple of things uh, that Jesus was dealing with on day one of Passion Week. Or actually, this is day two, day one of Passion Week. Uh, I'll I'll uh, talk about that for a second. Is just the uh, the triumphal entry. It was the day that Jesus had to be here. Um. The exact day, uh, April 6th, 32 A.D., 
according to the widely accepted scholarship of Sir Robert Anderson in a wonderful book called The Coming Prince. Jesus had to appear in Jerusalem on that particular day. And on that very first day, imagine what it was like as he came in with these huge crowds. I was sharing with our church yesterday that, you know, we see the reenactments or we see it on the movies about Jesus. And, you know, there's just a few dozen people spread around and, and uh, it's not, it wasn't that way at all. There, there were two million people in Jerusalem on this particular day. Jerusalem isn't a huge place. And as Jesus rode into town, the people were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest, they were shouting. It would have looked like a great celebration. You see, all of the people in Jerusalem knew that the Christ was going to show up on that particular day. The only question was who he was. And when Jesus rode into town on that first Palm Sunday, the crowd was disappointed. Tragically, the crowd was disappointed. Can you imagine, I asked our church, can you imagine being disappointed in Jesus? And yet they were because he wasn't who they wanted him to be. Now the application for all of us is, I hope, obvious. We don't get to change who Jesus is. We accept him on his terms. And on that first Palm Sunday, he wasn't the one they wanted. In spite of the miracles... It's an amazing thing in the passage I used yesterday out of Matthew chapter 27. When Jesus rode into town, rejected by his own, in verse 14 of that chapter, it says, the blind and the lame came to him and he healed them all. So miracles were done. Outstanding miracles in full view of all the people and yet they still were disappointed Because Jesus spoke about holiness. Jesus spoke about loving your enemy. Turning the other cheek. That's not what the Jewish people of Jesus' day wanted at all. And of course, this was the day where it looked like things were going great. The crowd was excited. Lost in the emotion of the moment. However, Jesus was not the one they wanted to be the Christ. It makes it really significant later in the week when over the cross Pilate will have a sign on top of the cross that says King of the Jews. And the Jewish leaders would will look at him and say, no, say he claimed to be. And Pilate said, what I've written, I've written. So that was day one. Day two, and I'll just talk about one thing briefly, but Jesus on the way back into town from Bethany cursed the fig tree. And everybody wonders, why would he curse the fig tree? Well, the fig tree was a symbol for Israel. But more than that, I think practically, Jesus was hungry. It was morning. It was time for breakfast. And this fig tree in full leaf, which typically is an indication that there are figs, he should be able to find some fruit. Jesus reached in and looked for the fruit, but there wasn't any. And he cursed it and immediately withered, the Bible says. And his disciples were astonished that it died so quickly. And Jesus did it because he wanted them to see what was going to happen to the nation of Israel. You see, it's going to be about 38 years later when the Roman army under General Titus surrounds Jerusalem and destroys it. And all because he came to his own and his own received him not. Imagine how brokenhearted Jesus was. We don't often think of him as brokenhearted, but he was. Because he came that people might be saved. They simply didn't want it. Obviously, I hope that those of you listening to my voice today want everything that Jesus has for you and you realize by now that Jesus is never going to change who he is. And no matter how hard the culture, even sadly, tragically professing Christian churches, no matter how hard we try to change him, Jesus never changes. We take him for who he is. And because of what he's done, or the truth is we reject him.
We'll talk more about day three on the program tomorrow. 340-9585. Let's go to Whittier, California, and our friend George on line one. George, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hello. Hello, Pastor Ron. Yeah, good to talk with you. Hope thanks, you have a George. great Easter coming up. Um, I have a question about, we joined a Bible study group, and uh, uh, last week we we talked about the seventh chapter of Daniel, I believe we're going to go to the eighth chapter next, but we've got uh, the leader's a great guy, but I think we're all a little bit out of our league as far as what is the real message or symbol that we would take from that, from those creatures that Daniel dreamed about, I guess, is the basic question. Um, Well, George, Daniel 7 really does require some, um, some help. I'm going to I'm going to go there in my Bible right now so hold on. Um D- Daniel said and wait to get to chapter 9. That's the the chapter that we talked about yesterday and I absolutely um love the prophecies in Daniel chapter 9. Some of the most specific prophecies in all of scripture are available uh from the prophet Daniel. It's just a, just a magnificent uh, book, uh, chapter seven in Daniel. Uh, let me get to it. Here it is. In the first year of Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream, and the visions passed through his mind as he was lying on his bed. Uh, he wrote down the substance. That doesn't mean he wrote down everything that he saw, but he wrote down the substance. And he said there were four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. That's the Mediterranean city. Uh, four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. Now, uh, I, and I, I can't give you a whole explanation of Daniel 7, George, but but prophetically, the sea is often used as a symbol of the nations of the world. That's what's going on here. Daniel is seeing that the nations of the world are being stirred by the four winds of heaven. Um, we remember that in chapter 2, when Nebuchadnezzar had his dream, these images that, that Daniel's going to describe had a different appearance uh, to, to Nebuchadnezzar. They were all part of an enormous statue. Um, that's the way it sort of looks from man's perspective, that adorned with precious metals in sort of a descending order of value. But from God's perspective and what Daniel is going to see, uh, we've got the, the, the statue in appearance as four beasts, grotesque and dangerous. The things that are beautiful in this world are not so beautiful from heaven's perspective. And even though man thinks he's in control of events on the earth, uh, what these this dream says is that God is clearly the one churning up the seas. Um, God rules over the affairs of men even when man is actually opposing God. So uh, let me go through very quickly um, to the interpretation of the dream that Daniel gives in verse 15. And that's one of the good things about Daniel. In most cases, he gives you the interpretation. Um, the, The first beast, the first was like a lion had the wings of an eagle. Uh, the beast here is Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. Um, in the Old Testament scripture, most notably in Jeremiah, Babylon is associated with both the eagle and the lion. So that's what that first beast is for. The second beast from verse 5 uh, looked like a bear. Now the bear-looking beast here is the second empire, the one that will follow uh, Nebuchadnezzar, and that's Medo-Persia. You can actually read about the overthrow of the Medes and the Persians in uh, chapter 5 of the prophecy of Daniel. Um, uh, and this is a parallel to the chest and arms of silver in chapter 2. Now, in this particular image, the bear was raised up on one side because the Persians were stronger than the Medes. We learn that in chapter 8. Um The three ribs in its mouth um, probably, and we don't know for sure, but they probably represent uh, the three nations that were conquered by Medo-Persia, Lydia, Babylon, and Egypt. The next beast um, from verse 6, it looked like a leopard. And this is a a leopard on its back, had four wings like an eagle. And this, um, uh, George, represents uh, Greece and Alexander the Great. Uh, Alexander the Great, um, one of my favorite historical 
figures to study. Um, Alexander the Great, he gives amazing detail about Alexander. He came to power um, because of the swiftness of his armies. Um, uh, Alexander was a brilliant man, uh, might have been a little on the psychotic side, but here's what he did, and this is the wings on the back of leopard. Leopards are fast by themselves, but with leopards with wings, this is Daniel prophesying, or God through Daniel prophesying, the way that Alexander would come to power. Alexander, such a brilliant man, he, he invented common Koine Greek. I had such an ego, he, he knew that the world to be conquered uh, needed to be um, um, united under common language. That's what man is trying to do. That's what happened at the Tower of Babel. Um, and, and so he's going to give it a common language. Um, Alexander died at 32 years of age, drunk, um, fallen down in a puddle, contracted pneumonia, and died. But the speed, he was so brilliant, he created a sandal with cleats on it and it gave his armies the ability to move at nearly twice the speed of any army before. So uh, when the spies would send out, uh, be sent out, okay, where's Alexander? They'd come back with the report that he's 10 days away, and, and he'd show up in five days, and of course they wouldn't be prepared. So um, th- that's the, that, the, that beast. Um, the fourth beast, uh, more terrifying and frightening than all of the others, it crushed and devoured its victims. Well, this is the last world empire uh, prior to the time of Jesus, the Roman Empire. The iron teeth in that image represent an empire that would endure. Now, what do we do with all of this, George? And I think that was the question that you were asking. Um, when we look at the book of Daniel and we see that God told the future with such specificity that it can only be God. And that's one of the things about our Bible that should put all of us in awe. Uh, I mean, no other religious book ever has tried to tell the future. And God does. And he tells it precisely with, with, with specific fulfillment. And what we can understand from this is that our Bible truly is the Word of God. It truly is the Word of God. Now... The application for us, other than having confidence in our Bible that it is the Word of God, becomes clear as we get further into the chapters and and virtually in the rest of the book of Daniel, George, we see um, the history of the nations around Israel within a thousand miles. But not only that, we see the history going down all of the way to the end of the age, uh, the rapture of the church. We see the millennial kingdom of God. All of those things are going to happen, and we have the authority based on the knowledge that all of the things in Daniel that were prophesied that could have happened already have happened. So all of the unfulfilled prophecies deal with the far future. So, George, that, that's what you do with it but, it, but these are very important chapters, and they require some study. Let me tell you that if you'd like, you, you certainly are free to do it. You go to calvaryessay.com, and my commentary uh, on the book of Daniel is on uh, the website for free, and so chapter by chapter, you can see uh, the notes, and that will help you and your friends sort of stumble through it. George, I hope that helps. Oh, it helps a whole lot. Thank you for your answer, Pastor Ron. Yeah. I My feel like pleasure. I just read a book. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Good day. We'll see you. Thank you, George. Believe me, George, my, my church will tell you, oh, I could have gone on a lot longer than that. But no, it, it's just Daniel is such a, an exciting, thrilling book. And um, um, anybody who wants uh, the commentary I've written on it um, is free. Um, CalvarySA.com. Go to the studies and it will direct you how to proceed from there. Great questions. Thank you very, very much. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Let me go to a question sent in by Gloria. Um, Pastor, in the parable of the sower, which of the soils represent saved people? Uh, Two things, Gloria, about the... um, the parable of the sower. Um, first of all, 
it is such a, it's the, I call it the foundational parable. If you don't understand this parable, you won't understand any of the others. And that's why in this parable, Jesus himself gives us the meaning. Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 18, Jesus says, listen then to what the parable of the sower means. Now, here's what we've got to understand. This parable, and I realize mentally this is what we try to do. We try to figure out well, this, the word of God is the seed that was sown. And the types of soil are symbolic, according to Jesus, of the different types of human hearts. And the first thing curiosity wants to know is, well, which of these people are saved and which aren't saved? The parable has nothing to do with being saved. Please, please, please get that. Um, The parable is about sowing seed. As believers, our responsibility is to scatter the word of God everywhere without regard to what kind of soil or what kind of a human heart that the seed falls on. This is just about sowing seed. And and when we're out sharing Jesus with people, uh, Jesus says that, that uh, when anyone hears the message of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one, that's the enemy, comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is seed sown along the path. So we're not to be discouraged when it doesn't appear that people are getting it. Now, obviously, um, this is the evil one is snatching it away. So we could, we could with confidence say this is somebody who isn't going to get saved. But on the other ones, we don't know for sure. The next soil is the one who received the seed that fell on rocky places, the man who hears the word and receives it at once with joy. But because it has no root, he lasts only a short time. We'd call that somebody who's excited about Jesus when they first hear the word. But there's never really any root that goes. So again, we're to seed. We're to scatter the seed uh, even on those hearts. And remember, we're not responsible for whether or not they receive it. Um, the one who received the seed that fell among thorns, and I think this is one that we all encounter God, is the man who hears the word, the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth, choke it out, making it unfruitful. It doesn't say that this person isn't saved. It's just somebody who doesn't prioritize the word of God in their life. And then, of course, the last one we can confidently say, good soil is the soil of a man who's, or a woman whose heart is prepared. And, and he understands it, receives it, and then he goes out and produces a crop uh, yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. That's the, the, the parable. That's the meaning given by Jesus. And that one parable, Gloria, influences every other um, parable in terms of how we understand it. And the consistency of, of hermeneutic in the parables is important. For example, uh, if, if uh, the birds are always evil, and, and the bird in this foundational parable, parable is evil, uh, if the birds are evil in this parable, then they're evil in all of the parables, and we have to understand it. And it changes the meaning of what some people think the parable means. So, Gloria, I hope that makes sense. It's hard for me to explain to people because I know we want to know, well, are they saved or aren't they saved? But the parable has nothing to do with this. One other clue, Gloria, in interpreting all the parables is that each parable has a primary point. And if you stray away and trying to over-symbolize, if you stray away from that primary point, then you're going to miss the meaning of the parable altogether. It's a wonderful, wonderful tool that Jesus used. And the parables, while they're difficult for us to understand because we don't live in the culture that that Jesus lived in, uh, every time Jesus told a parable, the people around him understood that he was talking about them. Good question, Gloria. Thank you very, very much. Donald wants to know, what books would you recommend to help me practically become a more godly husband and father? Donald, two things. One, and and, um, I frustrate people. I I admit it. I know I frustrate people when I say this. But, But the Bible, the Bible, the Bible. Read Proverbs. Read the Song of Solomon if you want to learn how to be a, a godly husband. 
um, um, Proverbs, if you want to be a godly father, read Proverbs, read Ephesians, uh, read Romans, particularly Romans chapter 8. That's where we're told by God himself in his word how to do it. And I, 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 I'm, I'm going to choose my words carefully. It always frustrates me a little, Donald, that people will not word, read the word of God and yet they'll go spend money on a book written by a human. Read it. Trust the Holy Spirit. Let him change your heart. It'll work out much better. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in the Monday show, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We'd love your calls. We'll be back in two minutes. Got a question for Pastor Ron and the word to stand on for life? You can send it to him via email at PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. That's PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the program. 340-9585. Donald, uh, I, I hope I didn't offend you. Um, but, but let me make this appeal to you and to everybody else in the audience. Until you know your Bible, until you've spent time in it, you've allowed the Holy Spirit to do His work, try to avoid reading books written by people about the Bible. Once you understand the Bible, then reading other people is rich and it's fulfilling. But you really need that that foundation in the Word before you can evaluate properly what men is writing, or men, how they view what it said. So, so exercise some faith. Jesus, I want to be a better father and a better husband. Believe me, that's in his will. Open the word and let him make you that better husband and better father. I promise it will work. Let's go to Cindy online one from San Antonio. Cindy, thanks for calling. You are on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. How are you today? Cindy, I'm doing well. You got your shots, you told us. How Did you have any problems or any side effects? No. Well, we actually got the one. We have to go back in April for the second one. Okay. And you can't even feel the needle at all. And I'm such a sissy about this stuff. I, I cannot <laughs> tell you. Five-year-olds are brave, braver than I am to get a shot. And film is bite quicker than you would this this shot it, it was nothing it was easy and i'm so grateful for the sister who had gotten ray and i um, our appointments and, and i'm just looking forward to getting back to church as soon as we get our second shot but Good what you, i have Cindy. here today is i have first i have like a kind of a daydream thing and then i have a question that has anything to do with the daydream but in luke 2 verse 13 it says and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that had come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. Now what, I'm think- what I was thinking about was when the heavenly hosts appeared to the shepherds, I think sometimes we envision that they're up there flying around up in the sky singing, and I thought, <laughs> hey, I don't know that that's really the case. I wonder if they were actually standing next to the shepherds on the side of the hill, and everybody was worshiping God together. I, I just can't imagine how incredible that would be to stand next to angels and and get to worship the Lord. Well, that, that was kind of my daydream <laughs> thing I was thinking about. But my question... So the, I, I lo- I, before you go on, I love that picture because not only that, we, we always picture them singing, but, but verse 13 clearly says they were saying. 
And it oh. would have been just a great, it would have been just a great time. And, and the, the shepherds, of course, they were the lowest of the low in that culture. The, the, the good people just stayed away from shepherds. And it was to the lowest of the low that the angels appeared. I like that. What's your question? I've always thought it said singing. That, that, wow. Okay. All right. Now my question gets to chapter 4 in Luke, and it starts at verse uh, 41, and it says, now this is out, Jesus was out healing a bunch of people. It says, and demons also came out of many, crying out and saying, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And he rebuked them did not allow them to speak, for they knew that he was the Christ. Now, what I'm wondering about is when the heavenly host, when, 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 the, when the angels in heaven fell, um, did demons fall? Is there a difference between an angel that fell and went with Satan and a demon? Were like demons like little mini, mini angels or something? Or where did they come from? Because they had to have been up in heaven because they knew who Christ was. And so that's my, I guess there's a question in there somewhere if the, if they fell, you know, from heaven or, or if the angels that fell from heaven had little demons when they were here or, or whatever. But if you can find a yep. question in there, that'd be good. I'm gonna <laughs> listen. So, I, can, I can, Cindy. Thank, thanks very much. Glad you're getting your next shot. We miss you. Um, yeah, the demons are, the, the demons are fallen angels. Um, and and the, the fallen angels, just like the good angels, they're demons of all different levels of power and strength. So there would some be very, very powerful demons and others less powerful demons. But believe me, a, a, even a less powerful demon is pretty powerful compared to us. So when, when they came out of them and, and they were shouting, uh, Jesus um, um, wouldn't allow them to speak. And the reason was because his hour hadn't yet come. In fact, this is just the beginning of his ministry. And uh, in this particular case, um, it, it wasn't time for his identity to be known uh, in general. So he commanded them. Now, I think sometimes we forget just how important this is. He commanded demons who hate him, who oppose him, who know they're consigned to the great white or, or to the, the at the great white throne judgment to the lake of fire where they're going to be tormented forever and ever they, they have nothing they want to do with god but even the demons obeyed even demons committed in their rebellion against god obeyed him now i bring that up cindy because too many of us as christians don't obey him even the demons obeyed him. How in the world can professing Christians disobey? That ought to shake us to our core, make us look inside our hearts. But that's what was going on. Right? It wasn't his time uh, to be made public yet. And so he made the demons be quiet. Thank you, Cindy. I appreciate the phone call. Here is a question from Kelly. When we return with Jesus on white horses in Revelation 19, will they be real horses? Kelly, uh, I don't think so. Um, Understand the cultural applications. And Jesus, in the Revelation, that Revelation was given to John, and he was writing down what he saw and explaining it as best he could, knowing that that human language didn't have um, the capacity to explain the things that that John was seeing. In this particular case, um, in in that culture, when kings went to war with one another, uh, they they rode horses. That's we get our the the, the phrase war horse um, from that. Um, yesterday in the, the triumphal entry, uh, we talked about when Jesus came riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, kings, um, the beast of burden they rode in times of peace were, were donkeys. So when you see a king on a horse, it's time to go to war. Uh, and so this, I believe, is figurative. Now, I could be wrong. It could be real horses, but it just doesn't appear to be room in heaven for real animals. 
But the idea here is that Jesus is coming to make war. And John would understand that and he can write that revelation. And we'll be with him to make war. Jesus will do all the fighting. But uh, I don't believe that these are literal horses. I think this is symbolic language. John um, giving being given a revelation uh, in, in language or in images that he could understand. So uh, I could be wrong, but I, I don't think they will be real horses, Kelly. Thank you very, very much. You know, when we read Revelation in particular, and I'll be starting in the book of Revelation on Friday nights um, fairly soon. We're, we're in chapter 6 of Ephesians now, and then we're going to be going to Revelation or to, uh, to the book of Revelation. Um, Revelation is one of those books that whenever you can interpret literally, you do. And I think it makes it clear those times when you can and when you can't. This is one of those times where maybe there's a little room for interpretation on both sides, but I don't believe they are literal or physical horses. I think they were sent uh, in a uh, revelation to, to John in a way that he would understand that the idea here is Jesus is making war on a world that he is rejecting or that has rejected him. Three four zero ninety five eighty five or toll free eight seven seven six three zero KSLR. Jerry says, Pastor on Titus three says not to malign anyone. So how do we confront false teaching if we can't malign someone? Um, Jerry, let me give you the 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 rendering from the NIV, the nineteen eighty four NIV. Um, it says in Titus three verse two. We're to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility toward all men. So the idea here in malign is slander, which is to lie about somebody. So uh, if somebody is a false teacher and you confront that false teacher, you're not slandering them. You're just presenting them with the facts. Now, remember, we want to, to show true humility toward all men, even to the false teachers. We want to be peaceable and considerate. We want to be Christ-like when we do it. But the idea here isn't just maligning somebody with with truth. The, the idea here is to, to slander them by lying about what they're doing. So you're free to confront false teaching if you do it uh, with humility, if you do it considerately, and um, um, your goal is to reconcile, to make peace. Um, then we have the responsibility to confront false teaching. So uh, t- that's not what Titus 3, 2 means. It means to uh, accuse somebody wrongly or to lie about somebody. And, you know, I, I realize that's a fine line to walk, but it's really not as difficult, Jerry, as it might seem. Oh, here's a question I'm not prepared to answer, I don't think. Let me see. This is from Nick. Has your pastor on? Has your leadership style changed in your many years as a pastor? And if so, how has it changed? Nick, I don't know if my leadership style has changed a lot. I, I would hope it's changed. I would hope that I'm kinder and more patient than I was uh, when I first began as a pastor. Um, um, I can tell you that that I don't have to be as involved in everything as I once was because we've got a staff of people that have been here for a very, very long time, and they think like I think. I mean, that's a really good thing. Um, and so so um, my presence or my involvement in every little thing uh, isn't required like it once was. So... Um, I guess that's a change, but that's the kind of change that a that a, a church that is growing and a church that, that is maturing uh, should expect. Um, I, I hope I'm kind. I think I've been kind in the past. I, I hope and pray I'm still kind today. Um, but um, I think that the freedom I have now is not having to worry about all of the details. Now, I'm still involved. I'm still responsible for everything that happens. Um, but the, the beautiful thing is there's just a bunch of people here who we have really grown up in the Lord together. And the, the, the unity and harmony in our group is such 
that uh, we made a decision a long time ago that we're going to walk together, and that's that's what we've been doing. So that's regarding my leadership style. I can't tell you one thing that has nothing to do with leadership, but my teaching style has changed a lot over the years, and, and in fact, it's changed uh, several times. Uh, I am Nick, as you if you've been listening to the program, you might know I'm visually impaired, so I can't read. Um, uh, what I used to be able to read. I, I Reading is one of my favorite things in the world. And I just devoured my Bible and devoured commentaries. I just loved it. And I can't do that anymore. So my style of teaching has changed. Now I can't read my notes as I'm teaching. So almost everything comes um, from from what I know, what's in my heart and in my brain. Um, but I can't depend on the notes anymore. And uh, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I don't know if I'm more effective as a teacher or less effective as a teacher. Uh, I just know that um, God's called me to do it. I'm doing my best in the power of the Lord, and I hope and pray that that's the case. Um, One of the things about my leadership style is um, I'm, I'm much slower to lay hands on people or to ordain them than I used to be. Um, we've had people that were ordained uh, too quickly uh, or people that didn't pass all the tests required, and and uh, I, I hope that's the case. And and I hope, and, and I'm not the judge of this, but I hope I'm more understanding and more compassionate, Nick. So that's the best I can do on that. I'm probably not the judge. You should probably ask Paula or ask uh, any of the guys on our staff. Um, you know, I might think I'm this is the nicest guy in the world, and, and they're muttering under their breath about me, um, you know, for the things that I do or say. So one, one thing I can say, uh, I'm really stubborn. I think that's a good thing if you're stubborn about the things of Christ. And that hasn't changed from the from the beginning. If If I'm convinced God's call me to do something. I'm going to do it no matter what. And nobody's going to talk me out of it. We're not going to talk about whether it's a good idea. We're not going to talk about the pros and the cons. We're just going to say, God said to do it. It's his church. We're going to do it. And and I think uh, that's a good thing. Adam says, as a Christian, how is it possible to be involved in politics when it is all so corrupt? Adam, um, th- there are just some professions that are exceptionally difficult to be a Christ-following Christian in. Politics is one of those professions. Now, having said that, Adam, I believe with all of my heart that we need Christian politicians, but what we need is Christians who won't allow themselves to be corrupted. You know, the fact that, that you've got to stretch the truth or that you've got to compromise to, to get along with people or to get work done or to get bills or legislation, but I think it's nonsense. A Christian represents Christ at all times, and and um, uh, I, I think the, the Christian that says, I'm going to run for mayor, I'm going to run for governor, I'm going to run for president, whatever it is, I think that man or woman then has got to make a decision that I'm a Christ follower, and I'm going to be consistent in implementing the things that God approves rather than things that man approves. And it may be difficult to win an election, being honest. But Adam, here's the thing. I think if Jesus is the one who's calling you uh, into politics, then um, I think Jesus, if he wants you there, uh, he'll supervise the election. He'll get you the place you need to be. I have a a quasi-friend. I don't know him all that well. He's a really good guy. But he was the mayor of a, of a city, Thousand Oaks, California, uh, a, a Calvary Chapel pastor, um, very, very politically involved. Uh, and, and he actually stepped away from uh, his office because he found that he couldn't um, do his job without compromising his Christian principles. And I admire him so much for that. Um, you know, when in Rome, do as the Romans do, but not for Christians. And so uh, I think you ought to be involved, but you 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 have to resolve that you're not going to bend on those um, issues where the world is going to ask for compromise. Adam, I hope that makes sense. 
Teresa wants to know, how do you rely on God more in a world that seems to be bankrupt when it comes to morality? Um, Teresa, when I, I read your question, all I can think about is, is it's not how do you rely, it's I have to rely. I mean, the world is bankrupt morally. Um, and sadly, many churches are bankrupt morally, and we got our motives all wrong. So how do you do it is to hold on to Jesus for dear life. Yesterday, um, a dear precious lady in the church, uh, she came up after the message, and she said, Pastor, I just have to hold on to Jesus. And I said, like you're holding on, he's dragging He said, no, like I'm like a little child holds on to the foot of their parent, and you drag them along. That's how I hold on to Jesus. Well, that's what you have to do, Teresa, in a world that is bankrupt morally. Um, you've got to be a shining light. So this isn't a how-to as much as it is a, a have-to because, um, you know, the world's going to try to put out your light. So we've got to go out. Jesus said it this way, let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and then as a result glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus describes this as being both salt, which is a purifying agent in the ancient world, and light, because in darkness you need light. And I, I just think that the way, Teresa, we've got to decide once and for all in our heart and in our mind that I'm going to serve Jesus no matter what. I'm going to walk in the light because he is the light. That's what the Apostle John says. So I think that's we just have to make that decision that we're simply not going to be won over by the by the rules of the world that we live in. We're not going to bend. We're not going to compromise. And then, Teresa, you've got to be ready for the world to hate you because of it. I mean, think about it. If you go to work and you say, I am a Christian and I believe this is wrong and I believe this is right, then they will likely send you to human resources and you'll have to take a sensitivity class. We're coming to a time when Christians, we've got to decide, nope, I'm not going to do that. I am a Christian. I believe in Jesus Christ. I don't need sensitivity training because I've got Jesus' heart in me. And then you've got to be willing to accept the consequences of your choices. We've got to decide by faith whether or not Jesus will stand for us when we stand for him or whether we're on our own. I mentioned this in my message yesterday, Teresa. Um, People, Christians, will compromise what they believe in because they're afraid of getting fired if they don't. We won't call sin, sin, because we'd lose our job. To take a test in college to get a grade will compromise the answer. Don't you think about this? This is the world that we live in. Christians have got to decide, I belong to Jesus and he's the only one whose grade matters at all. And I can promise you, Teresa, that nobody likes losing a job, but if you lose a job by standing for Jesus, by standing for what's right, he will be with you. It doesn't mean you won't have a difficult time. It doesn't mean you won't feel like you've been taken advantage of. But what it means is that Jesus will be standing there right with you with a smile on his face as big as heaven. This is my girl. This is the one. And he'll be proud. And that really is our only responsibility to make Jesus pleased. Here is the last question for today. Kayla, how can I explain the rapture to my children without scaring them? Kayla, I think you have to put Jesus right in the middle of the rapture. Uh, depending on how old your children are, say, we, we will be with Jesus. And explain to them, this is what's going to happen. Roman, I mean, 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and forward. Just um, one day in an instant, in a nanosecond, kids understand that. Um, we're going to be changed. And these earthly bodies will be exchanged for glorified, physical, resurrected bodies like Jesus. Jesus who could appear through walls and and. and could be in one place and instantly in another place. Kids like that. And we're going to be with Jesus forever. And I think, Kayla, this is important to prepare them 
not to be scared, but rather to be scared by being left behind. Jesus, in the Olivet Discourse, in explaining the horrors of the Great Tribulation, he says to his disciples, pray that you will be counted worthy to escape these things. And as Christians, we have accepted Jesus Christ. His worthiness has been given to us. And we're going to miss out on the Great Tribulation. And instead, we're going to be with Jesus forever and ever and ever. And I, I don't see why that should scare them at all. I think it should be really, really exciting. And in fact, I've shared that with my grandchildren when they were younger. And, and they weren't scared at all. So don't make it like this spooky science fiction-y thing. Instead, just let them know that the best thing that can happen to any of you and your family is to see Jesus today. And Christians, we got to really believe that. There's nothing better that could happen right now, before I sign off in 20 seconds. Nothing better could happen to us than Jesus to call us to be with him in heaven forever. Can you imagine how exciting that day will be? No more pain, no more sorrow, no more evil or wickedness. Just you and me and Jesus. Kayla, that's pretty good stuff. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. This is The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Remember, tonight our men's, women's, and youth Bible studies at 7 o'clock. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.